So tonight is going to be far more information than exhortation. And I I don't apologize for that because we need to understand the background and the the introduction and the details uh, behind Revelation, surrounding Revelation, uh, in order to really understand what's going on here. If we just jump right in, we're going to miss a lot of really important things that we need to grasp to bring into some interpretive keys and principles uh, to bring into the Word uh, when we're doing it. I just want to read the first three verses tonight. We're really not going to expound them, but just kind of to introduce us to it this morning. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why teach through Revelation? I think there was a survey done years ago um, where they asked and they polled churches, uh, what is the book you most want preached or taught? And as you can imagine, the number one book, Revelation. They did a similar poll with pastors. Which book do you least want to preach or teach? And you can imagine the number one on that list was exactly the same. It was Revelation. And if there's anything that you get out of this study, this is the one thing I want you to take from it. Revelation does not have an S on the end. It is not Revelations. That's a joke. But it isn't. It's Revelation. And so if you want to make sure you say that right, you can say it is Christ Revelation. The revelation, we're going through the revelation, but it's one revelation. It's not multiple revelations. It's not a bunch of different continual revelations. It is the revelation, the unveiling that Christ has given his people. But why teach through this book? Well, first and foremost, the obvious reason, because it's the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why. This is the Word of God. And as such, we hurt ourselves and harm ourselves by putting it to the margins. Saying, ah, you know, we don't really read that. Luther actually said the book was unedifying for believers. I very well disagree with Luther, just like I disagreed with his view that James shouldn't be in the canon. It is very edifying for the believer. Secondly, I would say here as we read there, it said, blessed are those who hear this book read out loud. Blessed are those who read it, and blessed are those who keep it, who obey it, what it says. So this is the second reason we do it because Christ gave it to his church as a blessing. 
It's a blessing. From the earliest times of the church, Revelation is one of the most read and used books of the New Testament. One of the most quoted books of the early church. And what I, what I say about that, a little tidbit I give to you as we begin this study, read through Revelation a lot. Read through it 50 to 100 times by the time we're done with this series. Why? Because it says, blessed are those who read it and hear it out loud. Read it out loud to yourself. Read it in large portions. Because as you read it through large portions, I, I, I tell you something, you're going to see some very interesting things. You're going to see things that keep happening over and over again. How in the world does Babylon fall in chapter 14 and then fall in chapter 17 again? There's a reason for that. We'll get to that. So as you read it, you're going to start catching on things about similar themes that keep happening over and over again. Why does this seem like Christ returns like eight times throughout the book? What's going on here? So those things are going to bring blessing as you read it out loud. The third reason why we teach through Revelation is, I believe, because of the interpretive abuse of the book. One of the great issues with the book being so marginalized in the pulpit is when a book or when a teaching or a Christian doctrine is marginalized, it leaves room for heretics and for really wild teachings to come in. And so a lot of times, the only places people can go to learn about the Revelation is somewhere online or something like that that can be off the deep end. But it's because we haven't been faithful in doing that. The book has been abused. And, and my hope is that we're going to bring clarity to a book that has been used really to create confusion. I mean, literally, uh, the Lord tells us, blessed are those who read this word. Not confused are those who read it. And, and I think there is a great blessing here. And so because of how abused it's been and how many different interpretations it is, we, we need to get some clarity. Fourthly, I want to remove the fear, the marginalization, and the sensationalism of the book. I, I'm going to just, just be straight transparent with you. There's a great fear coming into this book. Because of how, how much disagreement there is on it. From people and pastors and theologians that I absolutely look up to, love, and adore. And guess what? Can't none of them agree on it. I read the Protestant reformers, none of them can agree on it, hardly. And I agree with practically every one of them on this book, just to give you my, my stance on it. So I say that to go, there's a great deal of fear that comes into this book. And I want to remove that. And I pray the Lord will help me do that. I want to get rid of the marginalization. This is something we should preach boldly and loudly. It's one of the greatest books that Christ has given his church. I believe that. It's one of the greatest books in the Bible for what it proclaims loudly. Jesus wins. No matter where you find yourself, what period of history you find yourself, the book is clear. Christ is with you and he triumphs. So I don't want it to be marginalized. And then I want to get rid of the sensationalism of the book. This, this book can be sensationalized. It has been used by so many people and put in their hip pocket to justify their own thinkings and thoughts and schemes. It sells countless books that have had multiple 
false prophecies in them. I want to get rid of the sensationalism. What does it mean for every church in every age, or the church in every age? Lastly, uh, why teach through Revelation? To provide blessing and comfort to us in light of the current situation we find ourselves in. It's crazy, man. I mean, people thinking they're different genders, crazy pandemics, wars. But what we're going to see is, as crazy as that is, it's not new. It isn't new. There's a reason why practically the church in every century since Christ has believed, we're here. It's happening right now. It's because there's always been wars and rumors and wars and earthquakes and famines and all of these horrific things. Every person, every Christian during the Black Plague thought, it's the judgment that's getting poured out. We're here. I say that to just go, Revelation was given to the church as a light of comfort, assurance, and hope for its entire existence until the consummating return of Christ. We get hope from this book. No matter what we face or what will come our way, the message doesn't change. What looks like losses is in reality the victory of Christ playing out right before us. Some challenges, interpretive challenges to reading the book of Revelation First is dealing with what I call default interpretations. The vast majority of modern American evangelicals have a default eschatology. And that default eschatology is what I call dispensational premillennialism. It's practically all anyone knows just off the get-go. If you've been raised in any kind of conservative Baptist traditional circles, you've probably been raised with a dispensational futurist view of the book. And it's not because, it's primarily because you've just never even heard there were other views. Most people don't even know that there's other ways to look at the book of Revelation than some, for, some futuristic prophetic view. So I was until I entered into the seminary and began studying the world. I was like, whoa, there's actually other views to this thing. And, and as the proverb said, right, every man is right until someone rises up to challenge him. And so I say that to go... I, I, I want you to come in here. If you have those views, or if that is your view, that's okay. But allow yourself to open to the fullness of what uh, of the views that have been brought to this book, and see how they hold up in light of the teaching of Scripture. Beware coming in with a default position that really has never been challenged because it's just what we've been taught. Most individuals don't even realize that the view they're holding didn't even come into existence until the 19th century. Secondly, the second interpretive challenge is there's a lack of familiarity with Old Testament prophecy. And for many of us, we're all kind of guilty of that. I mean, uh, most people don't just find themselves reading through Amos. You know, most people are like, you know, I just love Haggai. Let me go hear what Zechariah has to say today. Most people are, are gospel people. They, are, they just kind of pluck and pull, or they get started in the Old Testament. Like I said, they get to Deuteronomy, and they just kind of, ah, getting kind of boring. Let me jump to Matthew in my daily reading plan. right? So there's a lack of familiarity with Old Testament prophecy, which makes things very difficult when it comes to the book of Revelation. Revelation alludes to the Old Testament more than all other New Testament books combined. 
There are more allusions to the Old Testament Revelation than there are in every other 26 book of the New Testament combined. So if you don't know Old Testament prophecy, or you don't see where John's getting the language from, it just sounds like a bunch of weird things he's talking about. When in reality, if you just go read like Daniel 2 or Daniel 7, you go, oh, that's exactly what he's talking about. Same thing, nothing different there. The Revelation draws upon concepts and imagery from Isaiah 79 times, Daniel 53 times, Ezekiel 48 times, Jeremiah 22 times, Zechariah 15 times, Amos 9 times, Joel 8 times. That's not all of them, that's just an example of where it's going. One of the great things that you will do to help you during our study of the Revelation is read the Old Testament prophets. Read the Old Testament prophets. More than you do in Times websites. I would argue my interpretation, and I, and I believe that it is a, a faithful one, is that when you look at the scroll that is held before John in chapters 4 and 5 that he's weeping over because no one is able to open it, that the scroll is actually symbolic of all of the Old Testament prophecy, which was sealed. Remember Daniel's prophecy was to be sealed? And there's only one person who can unlock the sealed prophecy, the veiled prophecy of the Old Testament. It is the slain lamb. He is the yes and amen of all of those prophecies. And so he unlocks it for us. Jesus is the interpretive key to all prophecy. Thirdly, there's a lack of familiarity with biblical theology. And that is the idea of how does the Bible tell its own story? So often we see the two testaments and we think, okay, there was the testament, those were for the Jews, New Testament, those are for the Christians, and we don't really know how they work together. Some people say we can totally disconnect Divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. If you do that, you won't understand a single thing the apostles preach. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. So sometimes we can look at the Old Testament and go, man, I don't see how in the world any single Jew would have understood it that way. And you would go, amen. That's why most of them rejected the crucified Messiah. But when you look at it in light of what comes through Jesus, it now is unlocked in a way unlike anything else. Jesus is that interpretive key. I'll give you an example of this. Revelation 19.10, the very end, this is what the angel says to John. He says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and ascended to the throne is the spirit, the key to unlocking prophecy. Understanding biblical theology and how the Bible interprets the Bible matters. Fourthly, there's a lack of understanding regarding the historical context of the book of Revelation. So often, and, and we're not the only ones guilty of this, the reformers were just as guilty, we'll see that in a little bit, of saying... You know, oh, the book is, that's us. Things that must happen real near. Okay, we're waiting for it. It's like you do realize this was written to first century churches. Real churches. These churches that are, it was written to were real churches. 
these were, oh, this was a real letter given to real first century churches. And we can't divorce them from the picture as if it has nothing to do with them or for them. So we need to understand what they were going through. Most people think that the majority of the book of Revelation only pertains to the last seven years of history. What does that do for literally every other part of the church? Or the fact that there's a view that says the church isn't even in Revelation after chapter 4. You have a book written to churches that ultimately isn't for churches. And I have an issue with that. And we'll explain more of that later as we get into the text. And then lastly, there's a lack of familiarity with the apocalyptic genre. If you try to read the apocalyptic portions of the text through a literal lens, I promise you, you'll misunderstand it. If you try to take, what does MacArthur call it? A literal except otherwise said so approach to Revelation, I promise you, you'll misinterpret 99% of the book. If you're looking for a woman a harlot riding on a dragon through the street in the end time. I promise you, you're not going to find it. You're not going to see some lady in, in crazy, like, skinky clothing on top of this gigantic brontosaurus walking through with diadems on her head. It's symbolic. The symbols have meaning. And they have meaning in light of the way in which the church could universally understand them. Locusts are not Apache helicopters. I, I just, I'm, say, I'm, just no, I'm saying that because I, I know those things are there. I, I just, we need to understand the apocalyptic literature. They were symbols that have real aspects behind them. When you look at Daniel's apocalyptic portions, they have real historical meaning behind them. They had real, those, the, the statues, each part of the statue was referring to a real empire. A real nation. There was those things. And oftentimes also it's important to realize that when you come to apocalyptic symbolism, oftentimes and most of the times, there isn't a direct one-for-one correlation. There isn't a direct one-for-one correlation. There could be multiple displays of that and how that unfolds. It can be referring to an entire uh, system like, for instance, the beast of Revelation, referring to the world system, the evil world system, not just specifically one evil individual, and vice versa. So, a lack of familiar with apocalyptic, which all of us, and as I have read through this and, and studied, I've realized how unfamiliar I have been with these things. On to authorship. Now, most of us, just at growing up in conservative evangelical circles, immediately uh, go to the Apostle John, which I do believe is the right answer. I do believe the Apostle John is the author of Revelation. But just so you're tracking, because you will hear this, there are two other proposed views of authorship. Uh, one was a, an Ephesian elder named John, John of Ephesus. Uh, there are some, uh, the, the first time this came around uh, was Dionysius of Alexandria, who put forth that it was John the Elder, and then later on, primarily in the more enlightened years, the idea was just a total a pseudepigraphal author, which means someone who took the name of John, but really wasn't John. And this is more of a second century writing. Now that's, I think, 
is, has no basis in history uh, whatsoever. The overwhelming consensus of church history has been that this is a work of John the Apostle. And, and the fact that literally John opens by just giving his name, the reason is given to John, that means like people knew who the heck he was talking about. Like If somebody came to you and said, hey, Blake asked if you could do this, you would say, oh, I know who that is because I'm your pastor. But if it was just some like random dude you never knew, you'd be like, who's Blake? What are you talking about? So the, the idea of the universality of the name here uh, really leans itself to that, plus the overwhelming testimony of church history and the constant use of figures and language like the lamb aspect and things like that, that we also find in the Johannine uh, epistles, John's epistles and gospel and things like that. Um, uh, situation and context behind the book. This is uh, really important because this really gets us into that first century history. Uh, there was opposition, rejection, persecution. All of these are central to the book of Revelation. What's interesting, though, is there is no universal persecution mentioned at the time, yet it is being promised to come. So no universal persecution at the time, but everyone's being told, be ready. Uh, it is coming. The Apostle John finds himself in exile on the island of Patmos. Most people call Revelation John's prison epistle. Because uh, in many ways it is. He is on the island of Patmos. Uh, Revelation was sent as a circular letter, meant to be read throughout all of the churches of Asia Minor. Now what's interesting is there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor. There's a reason why seven churches is chosen. And it's because of the number seven. The seven churches of Revelation, who are real, literal churches that are going to really get this letter, are also symbolic of the universal church. The full universal church, the number seven. There was lots more churches in Asia Minor. Colossae was a church in Asia Minor that's not in this book in that sense. What's also interesting is when you plot these churches on a map, it makes a circle. Completion, universal, and so... John is, the Lord has given John this picture of a, church, of a letter that's going to be good for all churches of all time. These seven churches were in the province of Asia Minor, uh, which is most of modern day Turkey. Uh, it was well known for its pro-Roman stance, uh, very kind of pro-Roman areas. They were governed partly by what are called the Asiarchs. If you remember uh, Freddie's sermon on the Polytarchs, these guys were called the Asiarchs, basically the Asian Polytarchs. Uh, who oversaw civic and religious life, and they demanded that the populace participate in emperor worship. This is where we get the idea of the emperor cult that begins to form in these areas. Now, uh, no one in that time could conduct the, conduct the affairs of everyday existence, even just going and buying and selling at the market, which that's going to be a key thing we'll hear later on. They couldn't even buy and sell in the market without recognizing Caesar as Lord, Kaiser Koryos. When Christians refused to participate, the effects were considerable. Uh, persecution, oftentimes at this point, was not official yet, but it was widespread at the local level. Most of these lesser magistrates were the ones kind of conducting this persecution at this time. There really wasn't a full-scale empire-wide as there would be um, growing much later on after the turn of the century uh, when it would really just become full-scale up until the conversion of Constantine. 
There was social ostracism, slanderous rumors, loss of jobs were the natural result for most Christians. And it is likely that the social situation behind the book included both internal pressure from prosperity and secularization as well as external opposition. So in other words, Revelation is responding to pressures both inside and outside of the church. Give you a couple examples of this. This is being seen especially in the letters to Sardis and Laodicea. The church, to some extent, in these areas, participated in wealth. They're both seen as wealthy churches. They, they're doing well off. These churches were struggling with the very real issue of the impossibility of serving both God and money. And then there was this group of false teachers who we're going to hear about in the book called the Nicolaitans. Now, these Nicolaitans convinced many in the church, they were teaching that it's absolutely okay to accommodate pagan practices. God knows your heart, so you do what you got to do to save your skin. But God knows your heart, so you do what you got to do, but assimilate to the world. Live peacefully and worship God in private. The last time we'll hear people like the Nicolaitans, right? But the battle between good and evil was between serving God and surrendering to the world. It calls Christians to reject compromise and avoid complacency. That's the letter. Don't compromise. Don't follow the Nicolaitans. Don't give in to the system. Why? Because Jesus wins. No matter what they do to you, Jesus wins. Your hope is sure in heaven. First century Christians also experienced eternal economic and social pressure to participate in Roman life. And those in the church who refused to do so faced the antipathy of the rest of the populace. They were ostracized, persecuted, with punishments including imprisonment and death. So we've got to realize we're already, when, when Revelation is written, it's written to a church that's already in the fire of great tribulation. It's important to remember. It's already under the fire of tribulation. And what did Paul say in Romans and excuse me, Acts 14? Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. So this isn't something new, and it's not something localized to one aspect of the church, whether it's the early church or the later church. What's the purpose of Revelation? The purpose of Revelation. Just like other apocalyptic works. Works of prophecy and even epistles. The main purpose of Revelation is not to unlock secret codes or predict future events, but to challenge and encourage God's people in the trials of the present evil age. Let me try to give you an easy way to remember this as we think about this aspect. Revelation is not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. It's not a puzzle book for you to try and, i got to figure out how this piece fits here and where this piece fits. It's a a picture book. It's a picture book declaring the same picture. Jesus wins, saints. Take heart, Jesus wins. It is to resist worldly compromise, spiritual complacency, and false teaching. It is to encourage the church to stay faithful in the battle as the church militant. 
to persevere in the midst of persecution and to maintain a prophetic witness in the world for the lamb and against the world system. That is the false religious and false political systems of the world. We are to maintain our prophetic witness against it. Lastly, it is to challenge and encourage the church by helping them see things as they really are, not as they appear to be. This is going to be important because one of the key things you're going to see throughout the book of Revelation is it says, I heard something, but I saw this. I heard something, but I saw this. So like, for instance, I heard of a ceiling of 144,000. The very next section, but I saw a great multitude which no man can number. And I'm going to try to make the point of the case when we get there that those are the same thing. The same representation in those pictures. But that's the thing. And I talked about it this morning. Often what we think we are seeing is perceived losses. Man, it all looks bad. It seems like we're losing. And what Revelation has done is to write to say, no, you just don't see clearly. You don't see the bigger picture. You can't see what God's doing in Asia and in Africa and in all these other places. Things aren't, they don't seem like they really are so often. And we, when we allow our focus of the church to become myopic to just what's happening here in Anchorage, Alaska, we miss so much. Revelation is written so that we can be assured that behind it all, all the things we're experiencing is the victory of the Lamb and the triumph of God's kingdom. Genre. And this is where things get interesting. Revelation is unique to any other book. Now, there are books that have both epistle uh, and apocalyptic or narrative and apocalyptic. For instance, Daniel and Ezekiel are both Books that have historical narrative as well as apocalyptic. Right? Daniel 1 through 6, historical narrative, 7 through 11, it's definitely apocalyptic. Right? So, so there's not, this is not the first time that it has a book with multiple genres. But the way in which the book uses an apocalyptic as an epistle is what makes this very unique, is while also maintaining legitimate prophecy that will happen in the future to come. So, first. Revelation is an apocalyptic. And we get this from the very opening of the book. The word revelation in Greek is apocalypsis, right? It is the Greek word to unveil. It is an unveiling of Christ. And the use of it in Revelation is one that is actually a direct allusion to Daniel chapter 2. Once again, these constant allusions. I'll show you that once we get to the exegetical portion of the text. Apocalyptics are intensifications of prophecy. Because you might ask, what's the difference between prophecy and apocalyptic? Really, the only difference is that apocalyptic is a vast intensification of prophecy, bringing the imminence and urgency to obey and to heed the warnings of the prophecy in light of the intensification of symbolism. We find uh, aspects of uh, apocalyptic in Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, which are going to be alluded to so often in Revelation. Secondly, it's a prophecy. 
And like the Old Testament prophets, it has both a foretelling aspect, which calls the church to covenant faithfulness, to covenant obedience, but also a foretelling. Things to come to give us the hope of the reality of the victory of Christ. And then lastly, it's an epistle. It's a letter written to real churches. The first three chapters make that absolutely clear. It, ends with, it begins with a prologue, it ends with an epilogue. Right? Like it is a letter, like every other major letter that we find throughout the um, New Testament. And even the chapters uh, in verse chapter 4 through 22, which is main, mainly the apocalyptic and prophetic portion, have aspects which are calling the church to obey in the midst of them. So there are aspects of teaching and calling to obedience within them. Some, some keys to understanding first century apologetics. One is to understand that during this time, what we call the uh, Second Temple Judaism, uh, or, you know, or if you're arguing that it was after the Temple, nevertheless, the first century is a time of great apocalyptic writing. Everybody's writing an apocalyptic. Everyone is doing this. Uh, when you look at some of the books that are found um, in, in, other spa, in other parts and other works around it, places like Second Baruch, Fourth Edris, some of these books that have been written during the intertestamental period, they use lots of similar language to these. And what are some key aspects that are found in these apocalyptic works? Well, one is the use of angels as guides and interpreters. That's a pretty clear key that you've now entered into the apocalyptic realm. When an angel is guiding a person to understanding. We're going to see that a lot with this book of Revelation. Secondly, they are often written in a period during or just before immense persecution comes upon believers. This is something we've already seen is indeed the case. Third, the use of vivid images and symbols to convey good and evil. They have clear, as I said, this is the picture book. And these pictures that you see throughout the book of Revelation are meant to cause you to get involved, to cheer for the saints, to praise the triumphant lamb who wins, and to detest the evil beast. You're, that's what you're supposed to do when you read it. It's just, you're part of this story to, to cheer on the saints, to praise the triumphant lamb, and to detest the wicked beast and the false evil world system. Lastly, numbers play a big deal. Numbers function. And I'm not talking about numerology. I'm not, we're not going to go and go, if you add up verse 14 and verse 17 with verse 36, you'll get this number, which ultimately points us back. There were no verses when this was written. It's one word. There were no chapters and there were no verses. I'm talking about the specific numbers given. 12, 7, 3, 4. I'll give, go more into explaining those um, tomorrow or next Sunday in our lecture. Here we get into our first point of debate, really. I, I think it's a silly debate unless you're just gung-ho that this is all the fall of Jerusalem in Revelation. But other than that, unless that's your view, um, it, the dating does not make a real significant change to any of the major interpretive views, which we'll look at later. The, the main consensus of the writing of Revelation is that later date, 95 to 96 AD, under the emperor Domitian. The early date, uh, which is, has a growing consensus, it's really held by the minority, but th that number is growing, 
is the early date, which argues for a pre-70 AD, most likely 64 to 66 AD under the reign of, of Nero that it was written. So those are the two primary dates. Now I want to go through this because I do find them fascinating. Uh, some arguments. What are the arguments for the later date? What are the arguments for the early date? And at the end, really does it matter? I'm already kind of giving you that, but I still want you to hear these because I do think they're fascinating. So what are the arguments for the late date? Well, the first is the aspect of emperor worship. The aspect of emperor worship. Revelation presupposes that Christians are being required to participate in some degree in the imperial cult. Seems to be pretty clear throughout it. That's one of the things it's going to talk about not bearing the mark. Those who don't have the mark can't buy and sell. And we're going to see that that mark is attributed to Nero, which I would argue is the symbolic picture of the imperial cult throughout the age. So I'll, I'll get to that later. But the idea here is that the problem is, is that we don't actually see this kind of major emperor worship being forced and put down by even lesser magistrates until around 85 AD and, and onward. So there wasn't this massive, and the fact that these churches are in Asia Minor, not Rome, or not near necessarily near Rome, makes it a little less likely that this was happening during the reign of Nero. Not impossible, but less likely. Secondly, uh, the second argument for the late day is the condition in which we find the churches in the book. So we see things like the spiritual lethargy of Ephesus. You've left your first love. And if the church of Ephesus is found literally like in the early 60s or late 50s, most scholars think it'd be pretty hard to see a church have already fallen into spiritual lethargy. Now, having seen the modern church plant movement, I would say maybe not, but nevertheless, uh, that issue. Uh, also, the lethargy in Sardis and Laodicea. Uh, another major issue is that um, Smyrna was not found uh, until really the early 60s. The very fact that it is written has all this history kind of governed within the, the letters already seems like it has been established for some time already. Lastly, Laodicea is said to be wealthy. Laodicea suffered a massive earthquake in 61 AD. And most scholars think it would be nearly impossible at this time for them to have built up that amount of wealth, especially as the church, the, the persecuted portion, within a three to four year period. So that's another one of the areas. A third one is, is this what's called Neron Revivitus, which is basically means the revival or the resurrection of Nero. This was a myth that was believed by many in the early church and many within the culture that Nero was going to come back to life and bring harm to the church, that he was going to be the one, the, the second beast. So like when you look at Revelations 13, it talks about the second beast rising up who had healed from a mortal wound. And many thought, Nero's going to come back to life. Well, one of the reasons why I think that gives a good argument for the later date is because Domitian is actually referred to in history as the second Nero. So that's one of the things that I see with that, that this idea of Nero's reappearance, that Domitian is actually the embodiment of Nero, but actually for the first time carrying the persecution more universal. The fourth argument for a later date is the use of Babylon. The use of Babylon. Babylon refers to Rome in Jewish literature after AD 70. And, and no, at no other time do we ever find 
uh, any kind of Jewish literature or any kind of Christian literature where anyone else is being referred to as Babylon except Rome. And we don't see it till after 70 AD. Now, those who in the earlier date argue that Babylon, uh, that the whore of Babylon, I should argue, is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the whore of Babylon. She's playing the whore to Rome, who is Babylon. Now, you may say, well, that can't be right because who would ever think that Jerusalem, the Israel, would be called a whore? Have you not read the book of Hosea? God calls Israel, um, basically apostate Israel, a, a harlot multiple times. So that's why though people will have the earlier view there. Nevertheless, the overwhelming historical precedence and the apocalyptic literature that surrounds the book seems to be overwhelming that Babylon can refer to Rome uh, and Rome alone. And then the final argument for the later date is what we just call church history, um, early church history. The earliest patristic authors support a date, and this is primarily, uh, even though there's some debate around it, um, I don't really think the debate is as, you know, as sketchy as the early date proponents would like to make, but Irenaeus is the first writer that we have uh, commentary, uh, commentating on Revelation and argues that John wrote it during the reign of Domitian. Well, what makes that even a little bit more weighty is that Irenaeus was a disciple of a man named Polycarp, who was a disciple of a man named the Apostle John. And so that is why many would say, okay, that's a, that's a pretty strong evidence. And, and the reason why I put that last is because I know some early day proponents will say, that's the only evidence there is. Well, well that's just not really the case. Now, what about the early date? Because this is where I, I'm going to love this book of throwing another view at you and making you go, oh, I was totally set. But then he threw that on me. The first argument for the early date is the existence of the temple in the book itself. Revelation chapter 11, there is a temple, and the early proponents argue that the temple's still standing. It has to be measured. If this was a, a later after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, there's no way that would have been in it. The problem is, is, that we don't have necessarily any basis that says the temple has to be a literal one. When we look at Ezekiel's vision of the temple uh, back in his vision, that was clearly a symbolic temple. So that doesn't have to mean it's literal, but that's one of them. The, the, the main arguments are around the issues that deal primarily with Nero himself. For instance, in Revelation 17.9, seven mountains are noted. And most agree that this is referring to Rome. Why? Because Rome is known as the city on seven hills. The angel then tells John in verse 10 that these mountains represent seven kings, which it says five have fallen, the sixth one is, and the other has not yet to come. Well, when you look at the, the, the number of kings... From Roman history, the number of emperors, you know who the sixth emperor is? It's Nero. And so if that revelation is talking primarily about the emperor Nero himself at that time, it's written at that time focusing on him, and being that moment, then it's hard to argue against the fact that this is being written during the reign of Nero. The third is the number 666. The number 666 is actually the number 666. It's not six, there's no like three consecutive sixes. You can't do that in Greek. It's 666. Now, 
when you take the Hebrew transcription of Cairo, Kaiser Nero, and what we call the gematria, which is the Hebrew transcription of the name, you know what the net, you know what the number is? 666. When you take the Hebrew gematria of, of Nero, you get 666. Now what adds even further weight to that is the first manuscript we have of Revelation is actually not in Greek. It's Syriac. It's in the Syrian language. And you know what the number is in the Syriac? 616. And you know what the number, the gematria in Syriac is for Nero? 616. So instead of it being a textual variant, it is merely a translation that is carrying Nero over into the translation. This is a strong suggestion that it was written before 70 AD. Then there is the initial thematic focus. The idea that you have this idea of Jesus coming on the clouds in judgment. And most of these individuals are arguing there and the utilization of the 12 tribes and the, the, Israel, the, the Jewish language that's used in the book is clearly directing towards the fall of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem. That when Christ comes, he stands on the mountain like Zechariah and places like that. These are pictures of judgment on Israel. And so the, the large majority of the book is a judgment on Israel. Um, many scholars who hold this view believe that this is John's version of the Olivet Discourse. And then lastly, the final evidence is what we call the Muratorian Canon. The Muratorian Canon was written in 170 AD, which has a list of the canonical books of the Bible. In there, there's a little study note, though, that said Paul chose to write to seven churches in order to follow his predecessor, John. Now, Paul died around 67 AD. So if Paul modeled his seven letters after John's seven letters then there's no way it could have been written after seven days. The problem is I think that's just absolutely church history hogwash. Uh, Paul did not. Paul wrote his letters first. There's no doubt about it. Most of Paul's letters were written before the majority of the Gospels um, in that sense. So uh, that to me, that's just, it's, it doesn't hold up well. Interesting thought, doesn't hold up well. So with those bits of evidence, what do I think? Well, I think there's strong evidence for both. <coughs> I think there's strong evidence for both, but I believe that the cumulative weight sides a little bit more with the later date. A little bit more with the later date. Uh, not dogmatic on it. If someone were to be like, oh, if somebody showed me a first copy manuscript from 64 AD tomorrow, I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. 64 AD. Uh, to me, what does, does it really matter? And the answer is, is only if you are someone who we call an early, early date preterist who holds that the book is only referring to the fall of Jerusalem. If, if that's your view, then if it's a later date, it's destroyed. There's just no way that can hold to it. Um, every other single view to it, uh, a later date preterist is someone who sees it both partially fulfilled in Jerusalem and ultimately fulfilled in the fall of Rome, it still holds up. fall of Rome doesn't happen for another few centuries. So um, if you're a futurist, if you're an idealist or whatever, none of these things matter whatsoever as far as the date. But it's just really neat history and shows you how the debate behind Revelation goes far beyond uh, even the uh, text itself. And I want to close by talking about interpretive views. 
And this is what I was talking about earlier. Most people come to Revelation with a default view, not even realizing there's any other views to hold. And so we're going to look at some of these different ways in which Revelation has been interpreted, the way it can be looked at. We'll stop there for tonight, and then we will uh, pick up more and go into structure next week, um, symbolism and things like that in our background and understanding. But So what are the interpretive views? First is preterism. Now this view teaches that though much of what was written at the time of John was future, almost all of it has been fulfilled with the exception of the consummating return of Christ, which is still future. So basically, practically all the way up to the end of chapter 19 was fulfilled at some point already in history, either in the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of Rome. That basically the only thing that remains future and that the church is to look forward to is the consummation seen in Revelation 20 through 22. Like I said, there are two forms of preterism. The early form sees it as totally being the destruction of Jerusalem. This is Christ's prophetic, uh, basically, discourse against apostate Israel. This is what the way they would see it. The second view, the, later, uh, the late date, would see that it has some aspects which are fulfilled in Jerusalem, but ultimately see its final fulfillment in the destruction of Rome by the Goths and the barbarian tribes. So the preterist comes to the text and asks the questions, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did this happen back then? And so they're looking at the text, looking back at those early portions, trying to find its fulfillment either in the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of Rome. The second one, the, very, the much more common one today, perhaps the predominant view uh, in Western evangelicalism, is futurism. This understands the visions from chapter 4 to chapter 19 as referring exclusively to a future time. To a future time. Primarily the end of history. This is going to be the end of history as we know it. And there are two primary forms of futurism. The most common today is what we call dispensational futurism. This is one that sees the restoration of ethnic Israel to its land, uh, the church's rapture into heaven, a seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist reign, the assembly of evil nations to fight over Jerusalem, Christ's second coming when he defeats the evil nations, a millennial reign, kind of like a third coming, uh, then Satan's final rebellion at the end of the millennium where he will gather together unbelievers from throughout the whole world who somehow became unbelievers uh, to fight against Christ and the saints, and then Christ's eternal reign together with the saints in the new heaven and the new earth. And so you have this picture of dispensational futurism that says that the church plays no part in either the end times in the tribulation period or the millennial reign. That is for Israel alone, ethnic Israel alone, and some tribulation saints, which I would have to ask the question for the person who holds this, do they belong to the church or ethnic Israel? Because that would be a real and major question with that if the church has been raptured from it. And so there is a distinction between ethnic Israel what they would say God's earthly people and the church, which they would say is God's heavenly people. And so there's that distinction there. So dispensationalism, and we'll talk more about this later, is a hermeneutic. It's an interpretive lens someone brings over the Bible and says that the church was a parenthesis to God's plan. 
that God's plan was primarily focusing on Israel. Israel rejected the Messiah. The Messiah was like, oh no, turning to the Gentiles. The church becomes this parenthesis in the period. And then Christ will come back, rapture the church, and pick back up where he left off with Israel. That is the dispensational period. Then there is what we call classical futurism. This was the, the view primarily held by the early church. Uh, no doubt about that. And held by individuals like George Eldon Ladd or John Piper. We call this classical or historical premillennialism. We'll talk about premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism in our next lecture uh, next Sunday. But these individuals... Um, don't, there's no rapture of the church. There's no two people of God. There's one people of God who will work through the tribulation together and will both be here when Christ comes to usher in the millennial reign. They will be together as one people of God through the millennial reign of Christ where he fulfills all the prophecies that have been foretold in Isaiah 65 and places like that. And then ultimately, he will lose Satan during that period. There will be the final judgment and ultimately comes to there. So the difference primarily between dispensational and classical futurism is there is not a distinction between the people of God. One people of God versus two people of God using two different means to accomplish his promises. Um, then historicism. Historicism kind of breaks my heart. Because the people that I love... Perhaps more than anyone else, my wife says my favorite, my, my best friends are dead men. I love reading the works of the reformers. And every one of them held this view. And I just think it's as wrong as can be. But what is the historicist approach? Historicist interpreted, interpreters generally see Revelation as predicting the major movements of Christian history. So... This the revelation covers the picture from Christ, the inauguration of the kingdom to the consummation of the kingdom, to which I agree with. But that every single event has a one for one correlation with history as we know it. This was the prominent view held by John Huss, Wycliffe, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, John Knox. Isaac Newton, all of the London Baptist confessors, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Matthew Henry, Charles Spurgeon, and even the Southern Baptist founder, B.H. Carroll. Now that's a group I want to be in. But not in this one, I can't be. I just disagree with this. So historic interpreters see all of this as, as having been fulfilled up to the time of the commentator. All of them, almost every historicist interpreter, sees themselves on the, the edge of the imminent return of Christ. Like he's coming, and they find ways to basically say, well, this was this event, this was this event, this was this event, and so this is where we are right now. It's why all of the reformers see the Pope as the Antichrist. He's the Antichrist. We're, we're seeing the final destruction of the beast. The papacy is coming down, and it's why a lot, also a lot of them were post-millennial. Because they believed that with the destruction of the papacy, the now glorious reign of the kingdom would come into fruition. That's what all the Puritans believed when they came to America and said, this is a light upon a hill, a city set upon a hill. They thought they were ushering in the millennial kingdom of Christ and the glorious reign. 
The majority of these commentators have understood the seals, trumpets, and bowls as unfolding successive events of history in general chronological order. Typically, this view identifies part of the apocalypse as prophecies of the invasion of the Goths and the Muslims. Uh, many look at Revelation chapter 9 and the locust and say that was the Muslim invasion. Further, the corruptions of the medieval papacy, the reign of Charlemagne, the Protestant Reformation, the destruction wrought by Napoleon and Hitler have all been seen as being predicted by John. That's what the historicists do. They find an event and they say, this means that. One of the issues with this view is that it lended itself to date setting. It caused people to start setting dates. One of the most profound date setters in history that's not often talked about is Martin Luther. Martin Luther set dates. He believed that he was in the end times and this is when it's probably going to happen. Another issue is that it tries to fit Western history into the book of Revelation. None of them care about what happened in the church in Asia, the church in Africa. It's just super Western focused. And so it's only our history that gets read into Revelation. The primary uh, people who hold to this view today, which isn't many, but there's only one group, and it's the Seventh-day Adventist. So every year there's a book that gets sent out in the mail by the, uh, the Adventist. It's kind of like the, the great story or something like that. And it comes out, and it's, they're, a bit, they're, they're doing a, tri, a historicist interpretation of Revelation and where things are. And the reason why it works so well for end of groups like Seventh-day Adventists is because they can manipulate and fit when they had false prophecies. Mm-hmm. Oh, we misinterpreted that aspect of history. Or it must have just been this event, not that event. And so it allows for them to fix in false prophecies. The primary question that historicism asks is, where are we now? There's actually a meme where there's like a picture looking out. I'm looking out the window to see which part of Revelation we're in today. That's a historicist interpretation. Of the book. The fourth and the fifth one, they kind of go together, that's why I have them on the same slide, um, is idealism. We'll talk about idealism first and then eclecticism. So, idealism, the idealist approach affirms that revelation is a symbolic portrayal of the cosmic conflict between good and evil, between the forces of God and of Satan. It says that revelation provides recapitulating accounts of the church militant and triumphant against evil from a different perspective each time. So they argue that in the book there are cycles of recapitulation. Church under persecution, church redeemed and saved by Christ, church celebrant, church triumphant. And there's this constant recapitulation that are merely told through different perspectives. That's why one of you argues, why you see so many cases where it seems like Christ returns a lot Throughout the book. While there's so many scenes of heaven with saints praising and saints praising and saints praising. They see recapitulating themes there. And the primary question that idealism asks is not when did this happen? When will this happen? Where are we? But where does our hope come from? Where does our hope come from? And there's a modification of idealism. And I know it's the right one because it has the longest title. No, I'm sure. But... (laughs) It's known as eclecticism or redemptive historical modified idealism. You can probably already guess which one your pastor holds to. The long titled one, the last one. Um, but this is a form of idealism that argues that Revelation symbolically portrays events 
throughout history, which is understood to be under the sovereignty of the Lamb as a result of His death and resurrection. That much of the immediate events and abominations that the early church would undergo were reflective of things it would face throughout its entire history and also foreshadow true in-time events that would come in the future. So where the difference is, is why it's called eclecticism, is it does a bit of a nod to every interpretive view. It agrees with the preterists that there are real historical aspects that need to be understood from the early church. It agrees with the futurists that there are real end times events that are looked at within the book. It agrees with the historicists that says that these things show a complete continual cycle from the inauguration of the kingdom to the consummation of the kingdom throughout history. And it gives a nod to the idealist that says the primary focus is not time or chronology, but the triumph of the Lamb, the hope of the saints. And so this is my view. It's going to be the view that I will primarily be expounding and exhorting from as we go through our study. But in light of that, every time we're in a text, I will give a nod to every one of those interpretive views, where this view looks at this or where that view looks at it, and then give where I see it being most faithful to the text. And, and if you're interested in seeing these views side by side, I want to highly recommend this. Uh, it's called Revelation Four Views, Revised and Updated by Steve Gregg. It has all of the views that we just talked about, with the exception of eclecticism, which you'll get an idea of in Idealist. But it has them literally with the verse-by-verse, side-by-side of how those people would interpret that passage. So if you're ever just interested in what it looks like, what are the views side-by-side, this really does a great job at that. And so I highly recommend that um, if this is something that you are intrigued in. Well, I want to stop the lecture tonight. Uh, Next week we'll talk more about uh, millennial thinking and how that fits into the book. We'll talk about the symbolism, uh, the structure of Revelation, and then we're going to talk about the theological themes of the book and what we should take from it. And then we will get in our third week finally into the text. So let's pray and then all you guys can ask any questions you want after that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this study. We thank you for this time. So much information, God. I know it's, it's like drinking through a fire hose, but it's just a, 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 an amazing reminder of how complex and wonderful your word is God and it's a reminder that we don't we don't just fall out of the sky that there are 2,000 years uh, of the church and thinkers and faithful men and women who you've put forward to help study your word and to diligently deal with it as as faithful Bereans And, and Lord we just pray that even if there is slight disagreement in these things, that we will get the main thing. That the main things will always stay the main things. That we will live in light of the glory and hope of the fact that our Lamb is triumphant. That He is the Lion and the Lamb. That He does not lose. And that what looks like perceived losses to us are always victories in Your sovereign hand. And so God, we want to leave this place with that comfort and knowing that Just how wonderful it is to belong to a faithful tradition of brothers and sisters who have faithfully studied your word because it's your word. And it's worth diligently studying and looking into and examining with all our heart. So God, we thank you and we praise you. We say these things in the name of Christ. Amen.